This is the Ben Ryan Podcast. Thank you to all the many that have spoken so positively about the first two episodes of this new series. I'm always excited about the conversations I'm having and it's just great when I hear that you, the listener, are enjoying it too. And I think you will find all of today's show of real value. Owen Eastwood is a performance consultant whose book Belonging I devoured recently. Topping the charts in his native New Zealand, it's crammed full of storytelling and take-home messages. I would read a few pages, then reflect on my own work and career and drift off into thought and feelings. It's such a good read. Owen has worked with some of the very best teams and organisations, both in the UK and abroad. For the last five years, he's been a consultant to Gareth Southgate's England team, as well as recently consulting with the new Premiership Rugby Champions Harlequins. And there are stories about those teams as well as many more examples along the way. Of Maori descent, that's also been a driver that's fueled his thinking around purpose, leadership, role models, success and much, much more. I drove across to his offices in the Cotswolds, really excited for the conversation I was going to have. The book had given me plenty of start points, but also in the conversations we had had previously, I knew this would be a really rich and thought-provoking chat. As the title of his book, we started our chat around belonging, something that he wraps a lot of his work around. From an emotional point of view, what I really do love is going into a team, even though I'm not there full-time, going into a team and having that sense of belonging. And that's really, really special. I had it with the South African cricket team where I would you know, go to Australia or Sri Lanka for the start of a tour, just join up with them and then not see them for six months. But every time I went into that space, there's beautiful smiles, there's hugs, they leaned forward, you know, and it was wonderful. And they asked me about my family and they knew my family and I didn't, they met my family. I honestly feel the same thing with the football team now. When I go into that environment, I feel I belong, even though, you know, I can tell by my accent I'm um, New Zealander, although I do, I'm proud of my English heritage as well, but it's about relationships. So from a work point of view, that is beautiful, I'm, and I'm incredibly grateful. You know, and, and it's, you got to—it's not always the way, and sometimes it takes time, and I appreciate that. I think from a success point of view, of course, it's lovely when teams win a competition and achieve their goals. Of course, it is, but it's—it's it's actually rare, really. I think of all the teams I work with and all the competitions I enter, it's actually there's not a great hit rate, really, but you enjoy it when it happens. I think what I absolutely love, and again, you know, we were having this conversation before the Euro semi-final, so who knows what is in store. But what I really do enjoy, because I've been involved in that team for five years, is just watching a group of people progress, get better, get closer, and get more confident and able to deal with situations which previously possibly would have intimidated them, but actually have a smile on their face and have walked towards it. Now that is magic. And, you know, you know, again, whatever the result is, is, is another thing. And hopefully we keep achieving our goals. But actually just to be involved in a group of people who keep progressing and getting better, that is amazing. And another thing that I really love is when people have actually exited the environment and the experience and reflect back on it when you catch up with them is that was awesome. And not only was it awesome as a memory, it actually is a springboard for me going forward because I actually found myself in that place. And I found what it is to be part of a really cool group of people in a team. And I felt, I found out what enlightened leadership looked like. And these are things which energise and propel me forward. 
And one little example I, I absolutely love I thinking about was with the South African cricket team, Mornay Morkel, who's just an absolute gentleman, wonderful, wonderful cricketer as well. You know, he came from an Africana background, etc. You know, one of his best friends he formed in his days as a protea was Hashim Amla. And I, I remember one day just noticing this, but it's always stuck with me. It was raining. It was one of those days was a, during a test match. You know, we're all in the dressing room. And it was midday, and there wasn't a prayer room in the stadium. So the Muslim players and the protears were kneeling towards Mecca, praying in the middle of the dressing room. And I remember just, just sitting there, and I remember, and it was just normal. It was normal. You know, it's just, we're all used to it. They could be doing anything. It was just real brothers, real family, and this is what some of our family does. But one thing I just remember this beautiful vision I have is, is as they were kneeling and praying, Hash was right in front of Mornay's locker. <laughs> and Mornay's like six foot six, or maybe six foot eight, actually. And Mornay is leaning over Hash, who's praying, grabbing something out of his locker, and then just sort of getting his thing and then just walking away. And there's not a moment of self-consciousness or anything it's just natural this is we are naturally together it's just, it was beautiful and I just thought what an enlightened way to be what learning you've had and how that makes you a better person going forward to understand different cultures and different people and respect it and go and tell your communities and your families about you know what diversity and inclusion looks like I have lots of conversations with people around culture on you know we don't measure culture and we don't necessarily want to put a number on it, but you explain it really well in the causal effect and cause and effect. So, you know, immediately used story, ancestors, you know, rowing across continents, and they might not know how many miles it was, but they knew where the winds were to catch and the tides to get them there. And I guess that's culture, right? It's that cause and effect. Mm -hmm. There's a, something at play, I think, generally, where we put more value on things we can measure. I suppose to a degree that makes sense, but the downside of that is the things that have a strong causal connection but aren't easily measured, we devalue. I see. I think you see that quite a lot. One of the key insights for me was when I heard one of the psychologists at the English Institute of Sport talk about 70% of behaviours determined by whatever environment you're in. And that was based on a meta-study they did. Now, how, how actually robust that is, I don't know, because I've never been able to um, have a look at the the study they did but that does get people's attention massively and including people in the corporate world you know when I mention that they will stop and listen to that so you know I don't want to be too much of a purist about it actually when you do have a little bit of data or statistics it can help get attention but so much of what we do I, I, I a good example for me is can we measure you to the second decimal point of what type of husband you were yesterday or, or what type of dad I was yesterday of course we can't but we do know the causal connections between our own behaviour and our own impact on other people. So, you know, I did have someone once said to me after a workshop that, you know, do you think we could build an app which measured our culture at the end of each day? And again, I, I you know, I sort of like the way you're thinking, but it's just not, it's not going to work. And also, I think it'd be dangerous because if that's not necessarily a prediction of what happens tomorrow, it's like you know, being a dad or being a parent or. Um, being a husband, whatever, or a boss, or a coach, every day we've got to front up, and the challenges will be different. Well, I was very fortunate to strike up a friendship with Robin Dunbar, professor at Oxford University in the Evolutionary Psychology Department, and he really 
pointed me in a different direction in terms of the way I was thinking about leadership and culture. You know, he explained to me that fundamentally human beings' behaviour in groups has not evolved much over the last 60,000 years, if not longer. And so he was able to take me back into the space of what, what that might have looked like. And I've done a lot of research around it, um, including studies of hunter-gatherer societies today. And what was it was so much of it was fascinating. I mean, first of all, which is actually self-evident, is the purpose of a group historically, and for 99% of human history we were hunter-gatherers, was to take care of people. That was the whole point of it. You know, kin, family, we understand that. That does make sense. But actually then the wider band of people, fundamentally that was the role of everybody was to take care of each other, you know, and sometimes in a hostile environment. So we're hardwired from a biological, hormonal point of view to have that sense of belonging and with that the security and, you know, feeling of safety. And we're used to and we expect our leaders to look after our best interests and not to damage us or put us at an unnecessary risk. So these are all massively part of our, not just our psychology, but our biology. But we also understood that we had to go out and compete in the world if we're going to be successful as a, as a group of people. So the leader was someone who would take care of us, but someone also who could organise us well. So if we had to go hunting or gathering or whatever it was, they were able to ensure that we were coordinated. But he also explained how in that environment there was a real expectation of fairness. So dictatorships in groups of 25 people or less are not something that's part of our evolutionary story at all. And it's much more of a modern phenomenon, which it seems to have merged with cities, etc., you know, in the last 10,000 years. Yeah, factories, all that in the last 10,000 years. So it's interesting now that a lot of maybe leaders and coaches are mimicking the wrong role models instead of actually our ancestral way of leading. They're sort of mimicking the people who run big cities and big nations, which are much more dictatorial and e- egotistical. Do you need to convince people sometimes that by getting that right, the environment right, where people feel valued that it's inevitably going to lead to success? Well, the, the way I approach it, and I, this isn't theoretical, this is actually the way I work, is that when we do the critical job at the start of defining our purpose and defining what success would therefore look like, that we get really you know, into the weeds about what is real success that we can all sign up to. Once we do that and have a proper conversation and create the space for it, what will come out is that we want this to be a great experience as people together. So it's not just the, an outcome of a trophy or a, or a profit target or whatever. Once we actually create space to talk about what success would be, we can say, we want this to be a great experience. We want to develop strong relationships through working together. Yeah, that's success. That would be success rather than a transactional nature where we all leave at the end of it and no one cares about each other and no one stays in touch. But also we have to ask a really brutal question, and that is if achieving our objective damages people, is that success? You know, I worked as a lawyer for 20 years and it was actually was a very nice law firm and we didn't have a horrendous culture or, or working environments and that, and that was good. But other law firms do spit people out and they burn them out and then they have issues for the rest of their lives potentially around all sorts of things. Um, and we've seen the same in gymnastics around the world and ballet around the world and, and some other Olympic sports as well particularly. So I think we've got to create a space where we ask the fundamental question is that if we damage people in the process 
of getting what we want is that success. Talking about success and talking about relationships, Scott Johnson, wonderful rugby man, I remember having a chat to him one day and we was walking along and, and, he, and I asked him, what's your rugby philosophy? And I like asking that to people, what's your rugby, what's your coaching philosophy, you know, whatever way to put it. But I like it because a lot of people struggle to answer that question, they really do. But so I asked him and he said, he didn't you know, miss a beat, he said, my coaching philosophy, my coaching philosophy is in 30 years time after I've coached a player, when I'm walking down the street and they're walking towards me, when they see me, they smile and walk towards me and put their arm out and then we hug rather than they cross the other side of the road to avoid me. And although that sounds a bit soft, to me there's nothing soft about that because if that is your philosophy when you lead people, then that will determine how you treat them in the real, you know, real-time environment of competing. So it fundamentally affects the type of environment you create for people. So to me that's consistent, that's success. And I bet you along the way, and I know, you know, Scott, they would have had plenty of trophies along the way as well. But he could identify that as a critical element to, you know, successful experience. You tell a story about being in the changing room as a young rugby player and how that affected you then and also perhaps then also did it do you think it's it's driven quite a lot of of what you do now as well? Yeah. I mean the moment was it's in the context I write about trust. So, you know, this was a moment which is um, was unfortunate. I still actually enjoyed the season overall and and the experience of being in that team. There's a lot of positives about it. But, you know, I think it's, it's quite a good lesson for people to just to recall about consistency of treating the way we treat people. So, yeah, I, I was in this team. It was, a, it was a very good team, and I was probably fortunate to be in it. I hadn't played rugby the year before, so I was having to play catch-up, and we, you know, it was quite high profile. So I had to improve a lot, and so I wasn't very confident. I and mean, as a kid, I was pretty quiet anyway. But the coach really was fantastic with me. You know, my tackling technique wasn't brilliant. He literally spent hours with me after training. Everyone else had gone just to really nail that my technique. Uh, my passing off my left hand wasn't great either, and he would, you know, just help me but also make sure I ran up and down the field under times with other players just practicing so he, he really really invested in me um, and, you know and I really felt he he really did care about me and um, I felt safe around him and I felt a real sense of belonging in that team even though it was a you know from a talent point of view I was probably lucky to be there but yeah, it did just one day and in fact it was a quite an insignificant game actually it didn't doesn't even make a lot of sense but in the changing room, he would always give quite a big sort of classic team talk. And I was just sitting there nervously fiddling with my laces, as I would always do. And for some reason, he, he, he just felt I wasn't listening to his team talk, and he, and he struck me across the side of my head. And, um, I'd, you know, I'd never, I didn't come from an environment like that. I don't think an adult had ever done that to me before. And I was absolutely shocked. And it was a real shame because that game, some of my family came to watch, and it was the worst game I played by a mile. I was literally couldn't concentrate on anything. I was, I was shaking. I was in a state of shock, and it wasn't the pain or anything. It was just the, the surprise and the emotional, upset, that caused that. But what I noticed after that is, even though he had been amazingly consistent up to that point and the way he had led and the way he treated me, because of that one incident, I couldn't predict his behaviour going forward for the rest of the season. So there were moments where I wasn't actually clear on our defensive plan 
or I knew I had some sort of weakness that had crept in, I just was not going to go to him after that incident because I didn't know whether he would act violently or aggressively or or be kind about it. And in fact, a couple of weeks after that, there was a massive storm, I remember, after our training. You know, and he kindly offered, it was about 10 miles we lived from the, from the school, and he kindly put my bike in the back of his car and drove me all the way, you know, into this gale force wind and took me home. It was just an act of kindness, but that moment meant that the trust and the predictability had gone. So I think we're never going to be perfect all the time. We, we And we're never going to be entirely consistent, okay? I mean, again, I, I do often actually think about parenting as an example and how it's so hard to be consistent, you know, depending on what's going on, others' behavior and your own mood and all sorts of things. I think in that situation... He actually probably was a very, very successful coach and was probably given too much. I wouldn't have been the first person that would happen to, and, and I didn't even tell my, my mum about it, so there was no complaint or anything. But they probably knew about some of that behaviour, but because the team was very successful, it was probably not dealt with. I think the thing that could have repaired the relationship between me and him, not completely repaired it, but certainly um, helped if he had have acknowledged it, not necessarily in the moment, but the next day or whatever, just taking me aside and said, uh, you know, I overreacted, I apologise, I want you to understand that I value you and I respect you. And um, you know, why, why do you think he didn't? First of all, probably back in that day, that wasn't really what males in part of New Zealand I come from would do. To show vulnerability, which that would have involved, wasn't something that we did. So uh, that would have been a surprising thing. Secondly, possibly, he didn't see the gravity of it in the same way that I did. There were certain players who he probably did that to, which would have offered ducks back for whatever reason, but for me it was a massive thing. I was a sensitive kid. I wasn't from an environment where there was any sort of physicality like that, and it, it really shook me to the bone. And also, the, from a performance point of view, I never really achieved my potential that year. Um, that, that put me in a state of anxiety, for the rest of the season, which reduced my learning capacity, reduced my the psychological safety in the environment had gone. And um, I was really distracted by his how he was reacting towards me at, each day at training rather than just focusing in on the task and getting better. I was just trying to work out you know, how safe is it today. You know, And this is what I talk about in the book as well, is how much energy do we leak and how much focus do we lose when we have a lack of belonging and a lack of psychological safety in an environment, and it's just an absolute waste. Again, this is something that we've talked about previously, about in cultures and in organisations and teams, things that add to your energy, things that take away your energy, things that help you get further towards what your your goal is on the field, for example, things that take you further away from what's... That's, mm. a, that's a great example. Have you seen any um, any organisations that actively think like that i did a session with an nba team a few weeks ago you know i was put on here's here we go and i again someone's going to talk about culture and i imagine i don't blame people for oh god not another one but you know the way i approach it is that i don't have any models to sell i believe it's incredibly contextual and often the two key questions i come with are let's just stand back for a minute from the day-to-day rough and tumble and busyness what are the things in our environment that energize us and what are the things that de-energize us and then the other question i'll ask them to consider is 
you know, we've got a strategy of how we compete and how we win. What are the things in our environment which are enabling that to happen every day? And what are the things in our environment which disable it? So even going back to my schoolboy example, you know, we had a game plan and all of that, but actually it was disabling it if you've got players who are too scared to say, I didn't quite understand what you're asking of me for fear of what the consequence could be. Or not wanting to admit they maybe got some weaknesses mentally or, or technically um, in case... You know, they'd be criticised for that. So that, that, that are things that are environmental, including the leadership, which are disabling us from achieving our goal. When that happens and there's, there's information that needs to be garnered from within the organisation around those, what you just talked about, lots of organisations, and you've talked about gaining that information, sometimes they create senior leadership groups or leadership groups. Um, you, you talk really well about the Thistle group with the Scottish team. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of always in two minds about leadership groups because sometimes I think what about the players that are in that group that aren't in that group do they think well they don't think I'm a leader or is it a case of they're there to help accelerate to provide more leaders to create a leaderful team because you talk about wanting to something I wholeheartedly agree in flattening hierarchy and a leadership team weirdly by creating a leadership group another hierarchy it actually can in the long term flatten out the hierarchy and Scotland showed that with Vern Cotter and his mm-hmm. three-year plan that he articulated from the start do you want yeah. to maybe explain a little bit about yeah. that yeah sure well, well when Vern came in as the head coach I think the team was 10th in the world ranking I think when he left they were fifth which I think is the highest they've been so you know that was a successful period of time and you recall in that World Cup quarterfinal they were very close to beating Australia dodgy referees decision away from making a semi-final so, you know, but he, he, his coaching philosophy is that this is a player's game and players should drive the environment and players should determine the type of footy we play and the type of experience we have. And my job is a facilitator. So he really is great around all that. But when he first arrived at the team, they'd been used to a very directive style of coaching and they'd not been given a lot of trust and responsibility. And I don't think they had a player leadership group, not, not a functioning one maybe so yeah he, he had a three-year vision which I thought was awesome leadership and it, it goes to the heart of what I believe in as well is that we have to be contextual here not just plant models and blueprints on people and templates so what he said was over these three years I'm going to hand the team over to you year one I'm actually going to have to be quite directive and I'm sorry about that and you're not necessarily going to enjoy my coaching but it's just the way it's going to be because our standards our work ethic our rugby IQ some basic things aren't of a high enough standard, and I'm going to raise the standard, okay? So I'm, I'm going to have to be directive about that. Um, but I'm also going to put together a player leadership group, which I want to start growing. In the second year, the player leadership group will then evolve into people that I consult with every day about what we're doing. Um, and the environment will have more player ownership in it. But it's going to be year three where this is really your team. And I promise you that when we come in for the Six Nations in year three, I will ask you what you want to achieve and what type of footy you want to play. And I'll facilitate that the best I possibly can. And it's exactly what he did. And, you know, in year three, we all went to this hotel outside Edinburgh before the camp. And the first thing that happens in that get-together, the gathering, was he repeated what he'd said three years before. And he asked all the coaches and management to leave the room and leave the players alone. I think they had about 45 minutes to have a chat. We came back in. 
and Greg Laidlaw leads the report back, which is this is the type of rugby we want to play. Similar to last year, but a little bit different. And this is what we want to achieve. We want to win all three home games. We'd want to win in either Paris or Twickenham. And he said, okay, how can I help you? Um, and they explained how they wanted him to evolve his coaching for them. And they went away and did it. And they won all three home games. And they lost an injury time in Paris. And um, if they'd have won that, I think they may have even been able to win the championship that year. So that, that was awesome. But it was based on player ownership. But I think the, the, the subtlety there is that he didn't come in with a model and saying, OK, this is what the All Blacks do or whoever, so you should copy that. Um, he was very, very much adapting himself and his coaching to what their particular context was. And I, I see the same, and even with England football team. You know, you can't just say this is what a player leadership group should look like and this is what you should do. And I think it's much better to ask them how they want to lead, actually, to kick off the conversation. Yeah, I mean, the Scottish example is great because, you know, earlier on in the book, you talk about how you'd got into the history of Scotland as a nation and to help drive the purpose, and then that helped push the vision. And then when Vern came in as a coach philosophically, you know, he knows that when it comes, push comes to shove, players make decisions on the field, and he wanted to facilitate that. Um, it's how I feel about a coach. You want to make yourself redundant. But as as he pointed out, and I had the same with Fiji, there's certain minimum standards standards that you know you need to be directive at the start to get them. Another thing that you talk about in the book is get them above the line mm. so that everybody's operating at a high standard all the time and then slowly then give them as much autonomy for them to feel that they're taking over. And, and the timeline, I thought, was the clever thing that Vern did, that he articulated it really well, and then obviously he, he walked the talk as yeah. well. And that, and that also goes to visioning, because it, when he first came in and gave that talk to the players, what they were doing was is they were actually forming neural pathways, weren't they? He, he was visioning, this is how we are going to improve and evolve into a really competitive team that it can beat anybody. Year one is this. It's going to be a grind. It's going to be hard. And not every, not all the brothers here are going to stay. That's just a reality of it. We, are, we have to find who can live above the line. Year two, we'll keep progressing. We'll keep improving. We'll keep driving standards and all those things. And the year three, we'll be good to go. And we'll, we'll you know do some damage. And we will compete and upset some people. So the players were listening to that and they were visioning this three years. And again, that doesn't sound like a big thing, but I actually think that is a really big thing. Rather than, you know, this is about training today and this is about this game or this season, I think it's good to carve out a little bit of time and actually just use your imaginations and just play the play the story out. And then the wonderful reference points for coaching over the next period of time, you've got such a... Everybody's aligned. They saw the same mental pictures of what this could be. The vision stuff again. I might, as you were talking there, I also had a, a thought on something you'd you'd written about earlier in the book, always in the middle of the book, um, and hopefully to the to to the listener. Look, although I'm I'm picking up various threads in the book, it doesn't doesn't mean that you don't go out and buy this the, the book because there's there's so much depth in this. But we talked about in vision. The Chicago Cubs was another great example where the organisation, you know, they hadn't won. Um, a world a world series for a long time and uh, i actually sat with the, the their ownership group in monaco for the um Loris awards because they were given they were shortlisted for for an award though so with the fijian team 
And um, it was pretty cool to, to hang out with those guys and start to hear some of the story um, of their vision. And one of the things that resonated with me, and it goes back to things that you don't necessarily measure but have value, part of their vision was imagining their, how would you call it, the celebrations afterwards mm. in the city. Yeah. Um, and we talked about this with a coach at the end of last season, how when I was coaching, I would often imagine the post-match and how it felt and talking to media or supporters about the game that we'd just won. And I quite enjoy that and daydream around that. And it's it's not something you measure, but that was part of the Chicago Cubs vision, mm. right? Yeah, I mean, that, exactly. The thing I was really attracted to the Chicago Cubs is what I call the colouring in process. So what, what that means, Theo Epstein, who's obviously one of the great general managers in, of any sport, came across from the Boston Red Sox. And, you know, so he was the leader of the baseball side of things. And I think this is really good leadership, but this is my bias, but I think it's really good leadership because at his first address to all the staff, he painted these pictures, or I would say sketched them, if you like, in pencil. We haven't won a world championship, I think it was 108 years. We're going to win it in four years. It's going to be great. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about how we're going to do it. We're going to completely overhaul the way we do our youth development. Uh, we're not going to keep going into the market and getting these big name, name free agents. We're going to draft players and we're going to develop the hell out of them. We're going to go away from this team which is obsessed with base running and all the rest of it to actually play a more a smarter game on the on the you know bases um, with our hitters etc. We're going to have a competitive advantage in coaching across the whole system. So he he had these big buckets of things that we were going to be great at, plus signalling how it's going to change from. But then what he did, which was very clever, was he said to everybody who was there, and you know, hundred staff, or whatever, he said, "That's the big picture. You now go colour it in." So over the next two or three days in this hotel in the Arizona desert, everybody went back to consider in their particular area how would we make that vision come true. So in our recruitment and the youth development and in all of these areas, okay, we now know what we need to do to be the World Series winners. And he is giving, he's not telling us, micromanaging us. He's telling us, you go away and you colour in the detail of this vision. And then for the next you know, few days they did that and then they all reported back to everybody. That was amazing leadership to do that. And, and you know, So he's not saying we're going to get rid of all your staff or bring better. He wasn't saying you, you reinvent it for yourselves, but these are the big things we need to be good at and you need to figure out how we get good at that. So I thought that was awesome. And then they did the similar thing with the players and one of those things was, as you mentioned, the players themselves come up with, the ultimate, the pinnacle of the whole thing, because we haven't won for 108 years, would be this parade that goes through Chicago. Imagine that. Because, you know, there's been like three, four generations of people who have missed out on this. Imagine that. Imagine all the Chicago fans who, who live in other places in America would come to the city that day. So they actually just did some beautiful visualisation around it. And that's exactly what played out. And I, I think it was something like it ended up being... Five million people were part of that parade, and ironically, including the All Blacks, who were there that particular week, and then lost to Ireland that week as well at Wrigley Field, I think it was, or Soldier Field. But um, I think it was the eighth biggest gathering of humans in history. And that was all where the players had done the visualisation. I just think it's good leadership when you allow your people to colour in the detail of the vision and it all becomes something that we all co-own. And having that perspective or that understanding on the journey that it's going to take to get there and when you mentioned about uh, how they were going to change the way that they brought players in 
that made me think of your story with Michael Owen and Real Madrid versus Liverpool mm. and how Real Madrid, the Galacticos, you know, they're, they're, their club is based on bringing in the best players from around the world, whereas Liverpool was a very different way of doing things. Could you maybe ex- expand on that story? Yeah, well, Michael, I think, started playing for Liverpool when he was 17. Had an incredible career, obviously. And I think at 25, he transferred to Real Madrid. And, you know, he explains, and it's in the book, and it's his own words, you know, that when you're at Liverpool, you feel belonging. And what that feels like is that not only is it a psychologically safe and a comfortable place, but it's actually even the micro things. If you're in a certain mood, because people know you so well and because it's, there's an openness to it, they, they, they know, oh, he's grumpy or he's tired or he's extroverted or whatever it is today. And people adapt themselves, but you do the same to other people around you. And then he also mentions, like, after the game, you know, Jared Hulio, who sadly passed away recently, but he was his manager. And after the game, where was he going? He was talking not only to Michael's parents, but to Michael's wife's parents. And so it was just this environment where, as he said, you could be yourself. Mm-hmm. You fitted in, you were seen, you were respected, and people could be adaptive around you know, where you were and how you were feeling. And you know, he said, I could thrive in that environment. When he went to Real Madrid, it was the opposite. You know, They had the big Galacticos, they had some massive names there, they were big egos, they didn't speak the same language. Um, but the thing is, the leaders, the coaches, didn't carve out a space to connect them to each other or to connect them to the story of us, the, 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 the identity story of Real Madrid. That wasn't done either. It was very, very technical, tactical. And the space was never created. And what he noticed as an outsider coming in is that he had this anxiety which was just sitting with him the whole time, even to the point there were times where two players might be speaking Portuguese or Spanish to each other and looking at him, and he was starting to get a little bit paranoid whether they were maybe saying something um, disparaging about how he trained or, or his talent. And his confidence was affected by those things. And, you know, he, he did okay that year. I think he scored 13 goals in 36 league games, which is not too bad given the strength of that team. But he, he, he acknowledges he never was able to perform at his best. He never. He always felt like an outsider and felt a bit excluded and felt that he had to keep proving himself every single day and it was exhausting. And then he was then trying to work out whether people were uh, rating him. And I think it's just a nice, clean example from the words of a successful footballer. There is a big, big difference in a culture of belonging and a culture of something a bit more transactional. And part, part of what he talked about was his induction at Real Madrid, which was... I think, you know, paraded in, as they do, paraded in front of the press and supporters in the new shirt and off he went. And nothing then about about the club, about the organisation, about the history, about um, about their belonging. How important do you think that induction process is? And have you seen any really good examples of players and coaches being inducted? Oh, I, think it's, I think it's very important, but I, I think we shouldn't mistake in belonging for just a good induction. Like belonging is much more day to day. It never goes away. You know, when we're part of a team, we always have a need to belong. It's never a box tick. And every day something can happen actually, which which shakes us around that. So even if I've been here for two or three years, you're my coach. You might give me feedback in a way which makes me start to think uh, maybe you don't think I should be here for much longer. Uh, maybe. 
you think someone better should come in and replace me. Just simply by the way you give feedback versus a, and it might not be your intention at all. So I think the day-to-day relational stuff is, is most important around belonging, but to answer your question in terms of induction, it's something I focus on a lot when I work with teams and organisations, obviously. We want to get that bit right. I don't think it's that hard to get it right. It's just actually valuing the space to create to do it. I think one of the best examples must be the All Blacks. You know, I don't know exactly what they do now, but certainly in the past, if you were selected... You would go and fly to the headquarters. The CEO would take you around the boardroom and show you every photo of all the all-black teams from 1893 to the present and welcome you and and invite you to ponder what people will say about your team and what your legacy will be. Then the coaches would have their own induction with the player where they would welcome them. They would talk about what the all-black's environment and culture and is all about. And also explain on a personal level, this is why you've been selected and why you've earned the right to be here. We love this part of your game. It's wonderful. We think it would fit so well and enhance the All Blacks. These are the areas we want to make you even stronger. These are the areas where we need to strengthen. Um, but as well as that, the players themselves would induct. So there's like three parts to it. You know, and the players one very, very powerful around... They, there's some questions I think have been in the in the team for like 100 years, but every player gets asked these two fundamental questions, and the, they get a heads up of that. And then there's a team meeting, and in the team meeting, certainly, you know, when I was told about it, they would the senior players would actually t- give them a short version of the All Black story, and this is who we are, and this is our values, and this is where they come from. And then ritualistically, you would be asked the two questions, and you would answer them in front of the team. But then it didn't even stop at that. There's, a, there's other in, uh, rituals around after the, your first game. Um, I was told, you know, how you would be given your, after your shower and everything, you'd be given your tie, or black tie. And sometimes they would invite your family into the dressing room for that or school, te- yeah, school teacher or coach or whatever. So it's multiple, multi-layered. It would have gone on for a week or so, not just one hit. Um, but then, as I said, I think the key thing is after that point is just making sure that this belonging cues are coming consistently. And on the exit of that, when players are told they're not being selected, there's many examples you know I've had personally and then as a coach of, of, of being told that in the right way and being told that in the wrong way. And it, again, it, it affects how you feel about an organisation. Have you got any views on that, on selection and how perhaps there's some good examples of of that occurring? Well, it is really hard, obviously, people exiting. It's very, very hard to take. Um, it's very emotional for lots of people. And I suppose, that, you know, it's all, con- all about context. But I think one thing I would say is that coaches I respect, Pete Carroll, Seattle, Seattle Seahawks, coaches like that, they vision and they can, not just for the team, but also for an individual. And as a lawyer, when I worked in a law firm, I mean, I think this would have been beneficial for me as well. When you arrive, actually just sit down with your leader and actually vision your career playing out in the short term, the medium term, and maybe even the long term. And I think, you know, Pete Carroll, those guys will do that. It's not a surprise when your day comes and you have to leave. Generally, that wouldn't be a surprise. It's something that, you know, we've created this vision of how your career could go, how long you may want to stay here or how long that might fit for us. And then we just sort of live in the present and make the most of it while we're here. But it is always in a context of, you know, and, and 
But it, it's really, really a key point, and I, I think it's, it's it's tragic when players leave a team and organisation. Um, or anybody really and feels that the bitterness of their exit ruins the whole experience and, and that sense of belonging and, mm. and they don't feel comfortable and they feel rejected you know and, but I, I don't blame them for that I think the organization's got to get that bit right. Mm. Seattle Seahawks is a good example I guess of a franchise that's been hugely successful over a long period of, of time and mm. one thing that that mentioned that recently you know they had no COVID test results go the the wrong way for them the only club in the in the whole of the nfl do you see a connection between that and the culture and the organization and when he said that you know i i see it. i don't know whether i'm right or wrong in saying in saying this but like today in the newspapers i saw that the england team had a lot of positive cricket team had a lot of positive tests uh, um, and their one day team had to change as a result of that and whether I'm right or wrong, I suddenly thought, is there something going on bigger than a positive test that's created them not understanding that it's important to, when you talk about perhaps the within the tapu, which I'm hoping we will chat about a little bit mm-hmm. later, the tapu and the noah. Um, mm. Am I making sense there about I'm drawing conclusions on, on mm. a positive COVID test or a lack of COVID test and the, and the environment? Well, I think there is a connection. I, I mean, I wasn't aware of that about the cricketers, so I'm not, I can't really comment on that. But in terms of the Seahawks, yes, I actually think this is pretty much universal. I think when you've got a really powerful culture, what emerges is a sort of archetype of the type of people we want to be. Now, that that is not a robotic thing. I mean, that is something where we love each other's diversity and personality. But having said that, we all align around this is the type of person you need to be to be part of this team and part of this environment. And I think the Seahawks is a good example, probably, where part of their archetype of what it is to be a Seahawk is that you have a degree of responsibility. You know that if you take shortcuts or break rules, it actually hurts people around you. It helps it hurts your brothers and sisters that you work with. That's not who we are. We wouldn't do that. We want to make sure everybody gets to the start line. And that's what, the, that, that's what it is to be a Seahawk. So I, I think that's powerful where you integrate standards into your identity. And so I, I definitely think there's a massive correlation. I mean, that was incredible, really. They didn't have, you know, and think of how many, I mean, even when they do their final squad, it's like 52 or whatever. Yeah. But they start off with about 100 at the start of the season. That's, not, that's only players, all staff, and they're all flying in from all different parts of the country. To not have any COVID tests, Positive, you know, it's amazing, I reckon. And I, I do think it's correlated for sure to the culture and the archetype and their identity. Yeah, and I'm, I, I briefly touched upon Tapu and Noah. Could you explain a bit more? Because I loved, I loved the way you talked about Tapu and Noah as two principles around creating the right environment. Yeah, so this is part of, you know, I'm part Maori and, yep. and as you know, I use quite a lot of Maori spiritual ideas to guide me. I often don't use the language, obviously, with the team, but it's just how it, it's just the way I think and the way I see things. And part of Maori tikanga culture, which is very powerful, is around these ideas of tapu and noah. So tapu really means this is sacred, this is non-negotiable, this is prescribed, this is the way it must be. And noah, N-O-A, is this is where you are free to express yourself. There are no 
prescription or rules or, or it's unregulated. Mm. So there's an insight which is science, from science and from psychology which is around people tend to thrive in an environment where there are clear boundaries, but within those boundaries they have a significant degree of autonomy. And that seems to be our sweet spot as a species of how we like to be. We don't like it to be completely no boundaries and chaotic. And again, coming back to parenting, I mean, that's a good example there. But then we don't want to be micromanaged either. Um, we want autonomy. We've got a need to be autonomous, and obviously that's well known. So often with teams, one of the first questions I'll ask them is just tell me because I'm just learning about who you are. And as you know, I often spend up to three months just immersing myself before I even open my mouth. But I, I will ask them early on, just tell me what is sacred here and where are we free to express ourselves? And, you know, we don't have to use the Maori terminology, but then people actually find that very, very useful. And, you know, it's the, what emerges is what, what's sacred here? Well, our purpose should be sacred if it's well articulated. Our vision of what we're trying to do in order to enable that purpose to live, that should be sacred. You know, we should, can't just have individuals opting in or out of it. Our values, our tribal values, should be sacred. Again, we're going to, it's going to be chaotic. It's going to be dysfunctional if we just allow people to, no, I, I don't fancy that. So these are the things that we all need to buy into for us to have this cohesion and alignment and, and to be able to go and compete together. But we identify other areas where we're free to express ourselves. And that's all sorts of things in terms of being able to speak up, comment, bring in new ideas, but also in the game plan as well. The coaches, I always say to them, okay, that's fine, I understand your tactical plan, but where is the knower there? Where's the opportunity for them to express their skill and the talent that they've been given by God? Yeah, I, 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 I love the way you've explained that. And do you think that if when perhaps the balance is wrong is when the tapu is too constrained, it's too tight, there's too much of it, so then you haven't got enough nowhere to be able to, you know, so mm. one one's suffocating you, so you can't breathe, so your nowhere doesn't allow you to, mm. to breathe. Is that Would that be a, a good way of looking at when you're trying to get that balance right? You know, as you know, I've been working with Harlequins Rugby um, Club this season, and, you know, very much working with the board and the CEO and the coaches, not the players, and just looking at the cultural architecture and the environment and stuff. So I definitely don't claim any um, you know, any merit in the, in the way that they've played this season, that's for sure. But one thing there, and to talk about Tapu and Noah, is it's so contextual. So for that group of people, given the heritage of the club, there needs to be quite a lot of Noah there. If there's too much Tapu, there's a resistance and there's a reaction to that. Okay, now... So, so for them, you toggle it, and that's what I think it is. It's toggling the tapu and noah, and there's no one right answer. Every context and situation is different. But with Harlequins this season, um, there was probably quite a bit of, of tapu, you know, possibly at the start. But by the end of the season, it was toggled quite a wee way where they were given a lot of autonomy and freedom to express themselves. Okay, Now, that would not work for some other clubs. That would not work at all, and I, we, we accept that, and we actually enjoy the fact that we're different. But and for me, I can go into a different environment tomorrow and it might be a team actually was very, very young, very, very inexperienced. A lot of talent, but not a lot of know-how and, and experiences behind them. And that might be an environment where we actually have to toggle quite a bit on the tapu because they're just not at that maturation point to give them a lot of autonomy and freedom. Now, they'll get there, it's a bit like Vern Cotter, 
you know, that's sort of what he was saying as well. There'll be quite a lot of tapu in year one. I'm going to sort of balance it out in year two. Year three, I'm going to push it along to the Noah side. I remember when I was with the Fijian team and we were trying to stop them high tackling. And it was a cultural thing because the game is played as an offloading game growing up in the village. So players go high because they want to get the ball. But um, there was, you know, there was a huge amount of cards that were were were, were coming out in international sevens and fifteens with Fijian players because they they needed to get their height lower. And I came in as an English coach trying to correct it when I saw it in training to stop and technically teach them how to do it right. And Oscar, our captain, said, "Ben, next time someone does it, get us running around the sticks, get running around the field." Um, because that's how we'll learn. That was how he wanted to put the, the tapu in around it because in, he knew that we needed he needed that reaction for them to understand to get the tackle round down. And, and it's an interesting example again of how it's it's a living, breathing organism, I guess. Mm. I so I really do agree with that. And that's something I've learned with the more experience I've got is not to go in with set views. Do not do that. I had an experience at the Royal, you know with the Royal Ballet School, which I really enjoyed it and. And, and, and in ballet, that when they give correction, <laughs> i.e. feedback, it felt really quite harsh to me. Like there wasn't a lot of, um, you know, sandwiching in terms of that was great, thank you, and then the tough stuff and then a nice finish. It was just straight into the tough stuff and that was it. So, I, I you know, I had a bit of a reaction to that, like I was thinking, oh, I don't like that. But, you know, after three months of actually understanding not only the school but actually the wider ballet culture, and understanding where that comes from, and in fact, it's a very cultural way of communicating. Mm. Then I was able to go, okay, I'll be less harsh and judgmental on that, albeit give them up ideas around maybe evolving it, because I actually feel from a performance point of view it could be done better, but at least try to do it differently. But it's a good example. Just, just hold back. Don't just impose people i had someone contact me the other day about my model and it's like you know i feel a bit embarrassed but i don't have a model i just need to understand what you're trying to do and how you're going about it and that's where there might be some external help that you know can be provided yeah there's a lot of pressure sometimes on consultants to be given to shown right this is how you should do things and this is your usp going in and i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna give you this this is the way to do things and have you got anything that you do the same when you go in somewhere is it very much a case of looking and understanding before you do anything definitely immersing myself i think within the football team i spent four months talking to players talking to coaches. I talked to England players back to the 1950s when I visited them in their houses. I want to understand what it was like to wear that shirt right back from the 50s to now um, across the diversity of the sport. And then I you know, would start talking. So that, that's typical for me. And people might think, what the hell is he doing? We brought him in. <laughs> and um, he's like sort of sitting there just observing. But I feel like that's really is an important part of it. I think the other thing about models is, you know, I, I look at... Th- when I do come in, I look at the macro architecture for sure. I'm, under, I'm looking for what your sense of purpose is. I'm looking for have you visualised that, i.e. have you created a vision. I'm looking for have you got a strategy? <laughs> Sometimes people don't, but if you've got one, is it connected to the vision or is it disconnected from it? And then finally, I'm looking, have you got a cultural design here? Do you actually know what you're trying to do environmentally about creating you know, this optimal place for people to perform in? So, you know... Purpose, vision, strategy, and um, culture. 
design. I, I will look at all those things, right, of course. And then, But then there's the micro thing, which is, you know, the team dynamics really is what I'm looking for. And I'll give you an example. And I mentioned it in the book, you know, a French football team I was invited to spend some time with. You know what? They could tick the box on purpose. If you had a little model, it would, you'd probably say, yeah, it's great. But they were dysfunctional. And, 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 and the purpose was there, and there's a vision, and there's identity, and cultural blueprint sort of. Yeah, that was it. But do you know what? There were these cliques who were tearing the team apart. So it, it, to me, it's not about doing these big modeling. You actually have to get in there deep enough to see some of those dynamics playing out. And those three cliques who were competing and de-energizing um, throughout the week, and then on a Saturday, the team was underperforming and they'd really become dysfunctional. So that was where the coaches had to put their attention and fix it, not on the big sort of you know, glossy stuff. So that's why I'm a bit sceptical about you know, just following a linear model. Yeah, when I was working with the French rugby players, one of the things that you know I hadn't, I understood the French culture a bit better having spent time with them. But one of the things they said to me, uh, the coaches, that that players aren't going to put their hands up and necessarily give you answers if you're giving them open. I was being very open and asking them for their own views on things because it's not cool in class growing up in France to put your hand up and say stuff. You know, very opposite to Fiji where they. They would say, yes, they understood, but they didn't understand. They just felt uncomfortable yeah. in that situation. Yes. So getting to even understand the wider culture of yeah. of how they were educated, what it was like growing up in, in their village, in their town, in their country, it all connects. Mm. You make a good example there that for a lot of cultures, challenging someone who's hierarchical, someone who is above you, is an absolute, you are drilled into you from a young age. You would never, ever do that. You know, whether it's a parent, whether it's a priest, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a, a chief, you would never do that. So it's all very well, coach saying, we do it here, thumbs up, go for it. They're never going to do it. So we have to find a different way of finding out how people are really thinking and feeling about the way we're doing things. So, you know, again, we learned a lot from that. And you've got to just, it's whether organisations and teams value it enough to create a space to actually find it or not. And again, a lot of people run behind being busy, but I think that's you know self-defeating, really. One of the models that does get thrown in at, at teams often, and I've, I, I've got, the first year I was in with the England team, I was told, um, oh, so and so is is blue, and so and so is red, and part of the insights profiling, performance profiling, where mm-hmm. where you you know you fill in questionnaires and you're told if you're you know, a red, a green, a blue or a yellow. And immediately, you know, I remember one of the players going, well, they tell me I'm a red and red means danger. So, you know, I, I, I think immediately I'm getting I'm getting negatively um, received because I'm seen as a red. And some of the same guys will say, oh, I'm a yellow. And immediately that means that I'm a bit flighty and a bit too, I'm not focused enough. It's like, you know, how do you feel about performance profile? I have my views on, on it. Um, but how do you feel about performance profiling? I don't integrate it into my work, to be honest. But I am open-minded. I agree with the point you make there. Like, I know for me, you can put me in a certain environment and you would swear I'm an extrovert. You know, I feel like I belong there. I feel like people respect me. I, I respect them. There's an energy there, which I really love. I just It just gets me going. Then you could, I, you know, we could go now into a different environment and you would swear I'm an introvert. 
my body language is completely fundamentally changed. I don't seem to have much energy or confidence. And, and that's, I've always been like that, and I think that's what people generally are like, is that, and that's where the 70% of behavior is determined by your environment. Insight re- reinforces it, doesn't it? That we are really a product of our environment very much. So I think those things are dangerous in that sense. Because, you know, someone can be a red or a yellow or a green or whatever, but actually their behavior, their mindset is fundamentally different with the coach A or coach B. That the idea that it's fixed is dangerous. Yeah. I, I think that's unhelpful. And also, you know, I've heard coaches and leaders say, well, they're a red or whatever, and just some incredible generalizations and fixed thinking around them and their behavior and what they're capable of. And I, I just don't like that. I like, I like everyone to keep relaxed and keep an open mind about how we can all grow up a bit, hopefully. So, I, you know, but I am, you know, there is obviously some science behind the benefit of it as well. But I, I, I haven't been sufficient, sufficiently reassured around that to actually integrate it into the work I do. So I, but, I, you know, often people around have done it and they explain to me what the answers are and stuff. So I'm interested as part of my immersion. I'm interested, but I can't say I ever run with it. I mean, like, thank you so much. I, I've like, I, I, was, I was absorbed by the book. I loved it. I'm gonna, gonna, it's going to be in front of house in my thoughts for, for a long time to come. And this conversation, I think, will, will be great for all our listeners. So thank you for, for your time and, and space today. Well, I'm, thank you. I'm a big fan of yours. And it's just brilliant to spend time with you. There was so much to pick out from that conversation with Owen. And it really hits my sweet spot on what I think is important in getting the best out of people how the environment you form and constantly mould and nurture affects so much of all our behaviour and ultimately of our success. When I'm working with teams and individuals, you are constantly, as Owen said so well, toggling the non-negotiables and the autonomy, the tapu and the knower, making sure everyone is living and working above the line, but also in a way that doesn't damage. I talked about it in a previous episode with Kath Bishop and it was reinforced again with Owen that performance and success shouldn't come with a human cost. No one should feel negatively about themselves as they enter, submerge and exit any program. If you value the people that you're working for, with and alongside, then it all ties into that and your purpose. I think I've said it a few times, but Owen's book, Belonging, is absolutely brilliant and it's available at all the normal places that link and more will all be in the show notes and you can find those at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcast again thank you for all the messages i've had and if you want to leave a review then that would be great and you might want to have a listen to the first series which you will find on apple podcasts spotify tune in amazon music and google podcasts this has been the Ben Ryan Podcast. Thanks for listening.